Now grab your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua 7, uh, a story that I suspect we are familiar with, but maybe don't give a lot of consideration to. Um, I don't think I've, I've ever, actually I know I've never preached from it. I've never taught through Joshua. Maybe something worth exploring sometime in the future. Uh, but this is certainly one of those passages that it, it's really haunting. Uh, because of the link, we won't read the whole chapter. We'll read uh, the, the, the opening few verses, uh, but we will work our way through it. And with that, if you'll stand with me, reverence of God's word, and we'll dive right in. Joshua chapter 7, we'll begin in verse 1. He writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up, spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people of Ai. They fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men, chased them before the gate as far as Sherabim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask, as always, that you would, uh, with our Bibles open, open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. This is a haunting story, a convicting story. May you transform us because it is your word. May I decrease, may I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. See you. Story goes that a man from India was on a long train ride with Albert Einstein. Einstein got a little bored and thought he would play a little game with the Indian man. Einstein said to the man, if I ask you a question and you cannot answer it, you have to give me $5. And in reverse, you ask me any question, and if I can't answer it, I'll give you $500. Well, the man thought that was a pretty good deal, even though he is going up against the smartest man at the time in the world. He said, why not? So Einstein asks, how far is the moon from the earth. A man thought about it. He didn't know a whole lot about science. Couldn't come up with the answer. She got out a $5 bill, gave it to Einstein. The Indian man, he said, it's my turn. So he asked this question. What goes up the hill with three legs comes down the hill with four? Einstein thought about all of his years of study and education research, experimentation. Eventually, he had to give up. So he got out $500 and gave it to the Indian man. Before he could ask his question, he, he, he paused and said, well, now that I've given you my money, I, I, just, I would really like to know what goes up a hill with three legs and comes down with four. At which point, the Indian man got out another $5 and gave it to Einstein. <laughs> I love that story. But what if I told you, I heard that story from a man who after his death, 
His ministry and everyone who worked for him was ruined because of his behavior of sexual abuse. It's a great story. It's a great story. But it's a little tainted now, isn't it? The ministry leader is a name that I'm sure you and I are all familiar with. It's a man by the name of Ravi Zacharias, who for many decades was considered one of the greatest apologists uh, in the Western world. Traveled all over the place, could tell a story better than anyone ever could, could, could really hold your attention, not just because of his accent, but because of his ability to tell stories and to make the point about Christ. He, he, he sold books and they were bestsellers and, and he had everything, and yet... It was discovered, though, though rumored at the end of his life, it was discovered that he had been living a secret life. Text messages had been um, uh, made public, or at least to, to investigators, and employees of his ministry came out and said that he had solicited favors from them. And as a result of the allegations, not to mention some of the odd businesses he were running for such activities... A full investigation was done to discover that indeed the beloved Ravi Zacharias was guilty. His ministry, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, no longer exists because of the man's secret behavior. It is not uncommon, is it, for many of our heroes for us to discover that they are deeply flawed. For years, Karl Barth, arguably, and I think is inarguably, the greatest theologian of the 20th century, German theologian, uh, who, who, was, who did stand up against Hitler along with Bonhoeffer and others. But for years, Karl Barth had been engaged in an adulterous affair with another woman. And it got so bad, he had the woman move into his own home by which he would live with both his wife and his mistress. To add insult to injury, he wrote theological arguments defending his actions. After all, he loved his mistress so much, it couldn't be wrong, can it? It's not unusual to find our heroes are deeply flawed. Sometimes we find out after they have passed. Sometimes we find out before. What makes this story about Achan so, so striking is because we've read the story before. The name could be different. The time period could be different, but it's the same story. Whether you're stolen the spoils of Jericho or whether you're running massage parlors that no one knows about, in the case of Ravi Zacharias. We've all read this story before. Let's break it down in a, in a few sections. Let's start here with failure, verses 1 to 5, what, what it is that, that, that we read uh, earlier. One of the dangers I've found with success in like sports is that when you find success in sports, it is usually followed by immediate failure. In soccer, the most dangerous time to give up a goal is after you scored a goal. You, you let your guard down. Because scoring is so difficult in the beautiful game, many think that because we have a lead and they haven't scored against us yet, they won't be able to score against us at all. And for the next 5 to 15 minutes, you're really vulnerable to the counterattack. Or imagine if this were basketball and you beat an opponent by 30 points, a, a considerable amount, particularly in college basketball. You might think that when we play them again, it'll be easy because it was easy the first time. But you forget that the reason it was easy the first time is because you didn't know it was going to be so easy. Come the second time, you may find it could have a very different conclusion because you're not as prepared for it. Great success 
can feed into lethargic performance. In Joshua 6, the previous chapter, Israel conquered Jericho without raising a sword. Really an incredible battle. I trust you're familiar with it. If not, I recommend to you the VeggieTale uh, show, Joshua and the Big Wall, or Josh and the Big Wall. Um, it is just wonderful, wonderful storytelling. Leading up to the fall of Jericho came a series of reports from, from spies and others telling the Israelites or letting them know that as the Israelites approached each city, the Canaanites and the Amorites, their hearts were melting inside of them. Let me give you two examples. Rahab in Joshua 2. As soon as we heard it, she of course is a harlot in Jericho, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in us anymore. Why? Because it was evident the Lord was behind you and if you came to Jericho, we all knew we were a conquered foe. You can go down to chapter 5 and leading up even closer to the conquering of Jericho, we find the same thing. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites and the Canaanites heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan, a story purposely mirroring that of the Red Sea. One is as they leave Egypt as, 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 as redeemed slaves, now they're entering as, as uh, conquering victors. Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them. All the Canaanites understood this, that, that, that if, if Israel chose your city to attack, you, could, you did not stand a chance. And now that Jericho has fallen, Joshua turns his attention a little farther west to a smaller city known as Ai. At this point in the story, one might assume that the rest of the cities would be easy to conquer. After all, they were able to conquer Jericho without raising a sword. They lost no one in it. The wall simply came tumbling down. They were able to go in and conquer in fact, we get this in Joshua 6. It says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. All the land made up of Canaanites, pagans, Gentiles. They feared Joshua. More than that, they feared Joshua's God. And so we see in verses 2 and 3, as he did with Jericho, Joshua sends in spies to Ai. Just like Moses sent spies in the Canaanites, they saw giants. Joshua sent spies into Jericho, met Rahab. Now he's going to do the same thing to the city of Ahab. And these guys are quite confident. They say, well, there's no need to send in the entire army. Keep some back, perhaps for defensive measures, but keep some back. You could do it with two to 3,000 soldiers. So he agrees. Let's take the higher number of that, 3,000, and we will go to war. After all, they said, there, do not make the whole people toil up there, for they, that is the people of Ai, are few. So having conquered the large city, they ought to be able to conquer the much smaller one. And so Joshua takes their advice. He sends in 3,000 men, yet lo and behold, they are defeated. So much so that, that um, they, they, they run away and they are chased down. 36 Jewish soldiers die as a result. And notice, go down to verse 5. Read, read how, it, how it, we'll just do it all in verse 5. The men of Ai killed 36 of their men, chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. Here it is. The hearts of the people, we would add there, the people of Israel, melted and became as water. You see the connection? See, what was before supposed to be the Canaanites, their hearts melted before the people of God, and now the people of God as their hearts are melting before the Canaanites. The Bible really is a good storyteller. This is the first and only failure of Joshua, for the most part, during the conquest. Something went wrong, but, but what was it? So we move from failure to discovery in verses 6 to 22. I'm going to put a picture up here and 
you tell me, do you recognize who this man is? His name is Robert Philip Hansen, and for 25 years he worked for the FBI. He was not a man of strong ambition, a rarity within the FBI in of itself, but he was able to, to grow in, in influence and whatnot over the years. But again, not a man of, of ambition, not, not a man of, of, of a great influence, if you will, kind of an oddball to, to many of his colleagues, but an influential man nonetheless. He was well known in his community and was an active uh, member of the local Catholic Church, particular wing of the Catholic Church, but that's neither here nor there. He was eventually, near the end of his career in the FBI, charged with developing cybersecurity with the FBI. Little did Robert Hansen know that role that he had been assigned to was all a ruse. Because the FBI were under strong suspicions, this man was a secret spy for the Soviet Union. For over 20 years, he was giving our enemy during the Cold War some of the most sensitive uh, uh, intelligence imaginable, so much so that some of our own people died as a result. Some of our own spies over in Soviet Union died. He went by the code name of Raymond Garcia and was paid up to $1.4 million in both cash and diamonds during that time. He was eventually caught, and, and you, you can get online, you, you, you can watch the documentaries, you can actually watch the videos. I've read a book on it, I find his story just fascinating. Um, and, and there's the arrest video, and, and basically he, he was going to make one more drop for the Soviet Union. And he goes to a bridge, and he makes the drop. Inside the drop, with all the intelligence, was a letter saying, this is it for me. I suspect the FBI may be on to me. Before they catch me, I'm going to bow out. Little did they know the FBI had already caught him. So as he returned from the bridge, they made their arrests. Well, here, Joshua is going through something like the FBI. He knows something has gone awry. Something is off. Someone in, the, uh, 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 in Israel is the cause of all this. And he, he is dumbfounded by this. So verses 69, he, he cries out to God, wanting to know exactly what it is that he has done wrong. And he has felt that, that he had done everything that he was supposed to do, yet despite that, he still failed. If you, if you know me, particularly like someone like my wife or kids, you know that, that I get really frustrated whenever I feel like I've done everything the right way and it doesn't work out the way you planned. You understand what I mean, right? right? Uh, I'll give an example. A few weeks ago, I was picking up food for a Bible study at the Capitol. And what I always do this is I pick the food up 45 minutes in advance. So let's just say I'm going to White Castle right here. I've not done White Castle, but let's just say I'm doing White Castle. 45 minutes in advance, that should be plenty of time if I order it the day of or the, a day or two before for them to get the order, have it ready by 11.15, and to make it down to the capital, which is three to four miles away from this church, right? That seems pretty reasonable, 45 minutes. I do that knowing that there's a chance they'll be late, which gives me an additional, let's say, 15 minutes. I can still leave at 11.30, be there by about 11.45, 15 minutes, set everything up. You see, I think I'm doing everything right. Not too long ago, one of the places I went to, uh, I got there at 11.08, seven minutes for those of you who went to public schools earlier than when I was actually supposed to be there. Walk to the front, say, hey, I'm here to pick up a mobile order. I realize I'm early, but I'll be here whenever it's, it's, it's ready. Okay, sir, we got your order. Send my name. And at 11.25, 
He comes out and says, oh, we just put your order in. What I mean by that isn't we just got it on the register. No, what I mean is uh, they were making chicken. We just had to put chicken in. It's going to be another 15 minutes. I left with 10 minutes to spare. I'm walking in with a group of staff on a busy session day. I did everything right. It still wasn't good enough. That annoys me to no end. I don't know about you. Maybe you're more spiritual. I, I admit it to you today. I'm a, I'm a serial liar when it comes to toast. And, and uh, my Coca-Cola is now confessing to you. I get angry over small things. Well, nevertheless, uh, Joshua feels that way. He thinks he's done everything right. What he did with Jericho, he's done here. Remember, Joshua is one of those spies who told Moses to attack and Moses refused. So Joshua is a man of action. He's a man who's sensitive to the will and the way of God. He seems to do everything right and yet it just falls apart. And that is the burden of leadership is the failure of Israel is lays upon his shoulders. There's a great burden upon uh, Joshua. There are 36 wives whose husbands did not return home alive. It's a great burden upon him. Why did they fail? And in response, verses 10 to 15, God orders Joshua to do a full investigation. And the reason for the failure is given in verse 11. The answer is sin. We'll go down to verse 11. It says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Now, God describes this as the devoted things. If you'll go back to chapter 6, verse 15, uh, the, the writer Joshua tells us what is meant by the devoted things. So instead of me explaining it, we might as well let God explain it. Verse 15, on the seventh day, that's important. It's, the, it's, it's, it's a day of devotion, right? It's, it's the Sabbath. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. So on the seventh day, you march seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So what are the devoted things? Well, this is rooted in Old Testament theology. Okay, so the so way it works is the, the first thing is the devoted thing. Your firstborn child is the devoted child, particularly your firstborn son. For example, whenever God asked Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, he was asking Abraham to devote to the Lord the devoted thing. When Abel makes his offering, the implication is, is that Abel gave out of the firstborn, not out of abundance. And that's the difference. The idea of sacrifice and giving was always you give in faith, not in abundance. So the first thing that God gives you, you give back to him, knowing God will give you more. It's an act of faith. So when your crops come in, instead of taking it for yourself, you immediately dedicate it to the Lord. It's devoted to, to, devoted to the Lord, knowing that God will bless you with more crops. Jericho is numbered among the devoted things. The idea was that this city was, was sovereignly uh, 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 given over to destruction, divine destruction, and it was God's act of destruction upon it. 
Thus, the city and everything in it, other than Rahab and her family who helped with the spies, were to remain there under the judgment of God. Do not take what is being devoted to the Lord. The entire city is being devoted. That includes gold. That includes uh, domesticated animals. That includes uh, men and women and system and walls and, and grain. We know from archaeology that there was plenty of grain in there. That it wasn't a long siege. They had plenty to eat. So, so, so they weren't to take any of that sort of stuff. It was all devoted to the Lord. And what God is telling Joshua is what happened was someone uh, violated that commandments. They did not devote Jericho as the first fruits, did not devote it to the Lord. So what God then instructs Joshua in verses 14 to 15 is how to discover who the guilty party is. And if you know the story, you know what they do. First of all, you bring out all the tribes and then by lot, you narrow it down to, to the tribe. And then you will then narrow it down to a specific clan within the tribe. And then you'll narrow it down to a specific family in the clan of that tribe. And then it'll come down to a specific household. And then finally to the man who was guilty. And that guilty household was to be punished. And so verses 16 to 22, Joshua follows the plan. You get to the tribes are brought, verse 16. The clans are divided, verse 17. The household in the first part of verse 18. And finally, in verse 18, we meet Achan. Let's, let's go down to verse 18. He brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now that word Achan is an interesting word. The name means trouble. I'd like to have some more information about his childhood, wouldn't you? Right? This kid is nothing but trouble, literally, right? Uh, and it may speak of something of the nature by which he was given birth. Jezebel's like that. I think Jezebel means pain or something like that. And many imply from that is taken from uh, the, the nature of, of how he was born. Go down to verse 25. You're going to see the play on words here. The Hebrews love play on words. It says, and Joshua said, why did you bring... Achan on us. Why did you bring trouble on us? He's speaking to Achan. Achan, why did you bring Achan upon us? It's a play on words. Well, in verses 19 to 21, Joshua confronts Achan and Achan confesses to the crime, much like Robert Hansen did the same thing whenever he was arrested. In verse 20, he says, I have sinned. And by my calculation and the help of some commentators, there are seven men in the Bible who make this confession. Pharaoh and twice in Exodus, Balaam in Numbers, Achan, King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, King David in 2 Samuel 12, remember the story of Bathsheba. Shimei, 2 Samuel 19, a guy who had turned against David during the Absalom revolt, and then Judas in Matthew 27. Remember when he returns the money uh, and he throws it at them. He says, I have sinned against innocent blood. Notice that what, what it says that he, he stole in verse 20. Um, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did when I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels then I coveted them and took them and see they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath notice that language first of all he stole a beautiful cloak from Shinar if you know your Bible, that word Shinar may like, I've read that before, but I couldn't even tell you where to begin. Let me just tell you, it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. It's associated with Babel. 
So here, Achan is associated with the attitude of the Babylonians. He has profaned that which God has dedicated. He steals a beautiful cloak. He steals money. And, and at its root, he confesses, was the violation of the 10th commandment. He coveted. He wanted to take what was not his. Another man's possessions. In fact, notice the language in verse 21. Tell me if this sounds familiar. I saw, I took. Two stories should come to mind. The first, it's the story of Eve in the garden. She saw that the fruit was delightful to the eyes and she took and ate. The other story is of David. He saw Bathsheba on the roof and he sent his servants to take her. It's the same pattern we see over and over again. Well, in verse 22, Joshua's men search his home, find the spoils. The man is guilty. And it was not just disobedience that hangs Achan. It's the deception of that. Claiming to be one thing, when in reality he was guilty of another. Let's look finally at the punishment. Punishment. Verses 23 to 26. Upon the discovery of the spoils, both Achan and his family were arrested, to use modern lingo, but then sentenced to death. Verse 25 is really the root of the entire passage. We already read this. Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. Joshua's question is really the root of the story, isn't it? Why would Achan allow his selfishness and covetousness to trump the good of Israel? Think about it. What Joshua or really what God through Joshua was offering Achan was more than a beautiful cloak from Shinar. He was offering him a home. He was offering him a nation. He was offering him peace. He was offering him freedom. He was offering him land. Not Jericho. Not, not walls that had crumbled. He, he was promising him an inheritance. Here is the son of a slave. And he squanders it for some loot. His pride ruined lives. His actions led to the death of innocent Jews. And so just as he troubled Israel, so God would trouble him. Now to us, his punishment seems severe. We are increasingly going in the opposite direction of capital punishment. This man is stoned, and not just him, but his entire family. Perhaps they were uh, accomplices in this that the text just doesn't tell us. We have to remember the context. Israel was to be the pure people of God. They, the, 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 the conquering of Canaan, if you, if you read the story closely, is associated with the cleansing of the earth in the days of Noah. And so they were to come in like a flood and cleanse Canaan and thus set up a, the kingdom of God. God would dwell in the land. And so Canaan, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, that's Edenic language designed to say that God was going to reverse the effects of the, of, of, of the fall. That through the people of God would come the cleansing work of God. And the minute they start the cleansing, they spoil it. 
So of course this is going to be treated with severity. And notice how it's described. You can go back up to verse 1. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted thing. Your translation may say something different. It may say transgress or something like that. Go down to verse 11 and describe it as stealing, transgressing the covenant of God, lying to everyone else. What's interesting is in verse 26, notice that they raised over him a great heap of stones that remain to this day. Now, if, 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 you, if you read Joshua and really just, just the Pentateuch and, and, and the historical books, when you see a big giant heap of stones, what are you supposed to do? That does not look natural. Looks like a group of people put a pile of rocks right there, right? I mean, that, that makes sense. And that's on purpose because... Future generations are supposed to say, hey, dad, what's with those stones over there? And the story behind that memorial was then to be told to the, your children, which was either to bless them. For example, these 12 stones mark when we cross into the Jordan. These 12 stones mark X, Y, and Z. Or it was to warn. Here, he, the, the, the father is supposed to say, this heap of stones is a warning to us all that we listen and obey God at whatever cost. God is a God who demands obedience and his judgment will be swift upon us. That is where Achan and his family are buried. But notice even more than that, there's this heap of stones, but notice the location. Yahweh turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. Now, even in English, maybe you'll pick this up. Does not Accor sound like Achan? A con, if you will, a core, a con, right? In Hebrew, these are clearly connected. This is the valley of trouble. And so when people would pass through the land, they would be near Ai. They would say, oh yeah, right over there by the valley of trouble. You know why it's called the valley of trouble, don't you? Go over there, there's a big heap of storm, uh, stones to let you know exactly what happened. Well, I was short this morning, so I'll be long this evening. Let me just give you just three points of application, okay? Um, and then we, we can call it a night. The first thing we see here is that nothing can be hidden from God. That is very clear from this story, is that had Joshua been successful against Ai, no one would have said a thing. No one would have known anything. It would have been completely oblivious to what Achan had done. In fact, that is exactly what Achan had hoped for. He had hoped that Achan would just, or Achan had just hoped that no one would need to know. He would just show up one day with loads of cash and no one would ask any questions. But nothing could be hidden from God. Achan foolishly thought he could privatize sin. In Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, and all that are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everyone is exposed. Joshua, Job 26, 6, Sheol is naked before God, that is the grave, and Abaddon has no covering. Psalm 33, 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. Proverbs 5, 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord examines all his path. Chapter 15 of Proverbs, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, observing the evil and the good. And then Jeremiah, for my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, and their guilt is not concealed from my eyes. This is why some uh, 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 view the, 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 the imagery of revelation of seven eyes and all this sort of stuff as, as imagining God who, who can see everything. And if you read the Old Testament where this language is used, it borrows the imagery of eyes to say not that God has literal eyes with pupils and, and, and all that sort of stuff, but to say God sees all things. 
If you want this in narrative form, read the story of Jonah. The whole point of Jonah was that he left the promised land so that God couldn't find him. Not only did he find him, he put him in the belly of a fish and sent him right where he wanted him to begin with. You remember Jonah says he entered into Sheol. Some see that as he actually died. So whether that's literal or symbolic, the point is that he was in the depths of the earth in the belly of, a, of, of the sea monster. And he has a type of resurrection three days later. If only I can think of a connection to Jesus there. Second thing we need to see here is that sin will be exposed. In stating that God knows all that we do, it is implied, and the Aiken narrative makes this very clear, God never ignores our sin. Whether judgment will come in this life or the next, we know the judgment will come. This is both good news and bad news. For if our sin remains hidden, it should be scary news. Because every act of injustice and wrongdoing will be brought to the lights. Same time, this is good news. Because if you are the victim of such sin and wrongdoing and injustice, isn't it good to know in this life or the next, truth will be brought to light. I've confessed to you before that I have a interest in true crime, a good true crime story. I'm, I'm not like some people who just are watching Dateline on, on you know, bated breath or anything like that, but a good true crime story I do love. And one of the things I find so fascinating with where technology is taking crime is the genealogical DNA, that if you can get a DNA sample of the criminal, you, you can put into the system all that sort of stuff. And what you can get, even though you don't have a name, what you have are first, second, third cousins, and what you can do, it's a painstaking process, which I think genealogists are now like detectives, which is, I think is cool, um, is, is they, they can say, okay, we know these people are second or third cousins. So that means we have to go to, to I think it's great-grandparents. Let's trace their genealogy up to great-grandparents. All right, we have these. Okay, the person guilty is a descendant of these people. And so they have to trace through all the standard acts of genealogy. They look at books, they look at grave sites, look at birth certificates, censuses, and all that, and they work their way down. If you have a profile of the criminal, let's say that they were born from between 1960 and 1980, they are five foot nine. I'm five foot nine. Let's do something else. Let's say they're six foot three and, and they are, let's say, Caucasian. Okay, I, I don't know. Whatever the profile is, then you can start to eliminate. You're obviously, you're not looking for uh, women because you have male DNA. So you're just going to look at the men. Okay, you can knock you out. Who was in this city when this crime was committed at this time period? It's a series of crimes you can suspect they're probably living in the state. Who was in the state during this time? And eventually you can narrow it down to about a handful of people and you can start the process. You understand that your DNA can be grab this is free not in my notes this is absolutely free if you wipe your mouth on a napkin and you throw it away the police has access to that and it is legal if you take a can of pepsi and you throw it out in your trash you take it out to, to the curb to be taken the police have access to that so all they have to do is get your, your 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 cans of pepsi no ice of course and and bring that they can get your dna profile and they can measure it against that so many crimes have been solved through this i find that just absolutely fascinating but the point is, is that even when someone thinks that they have been careful and, and, and that their name has never been suspected, now police can track you down and you can be exposed. Many cold cases have been solved where victims of such crimes have been vindicated and the criminal has been brought to light. In fact, more recently, here in the state of Kentucky, a crime was committed in northern Kentucky that was solved through genealogical DNA. I actually know someone uh, that was related to the victim. Incredible what can happen. What does it show? 
it shows that sin will be exposed. Either, rather in this, either in this life or the next. One last thing, grace is sufficient for the sinner. You know that we're eventually getting there, right? The story of Achan climaxes in the death of the guilty one. The only way to purge Israel was for the sin and the sinner to be removed. This is the Jewish system in a nutshell. Because Achan has defiled Israel, you have to remove the cancer. You have to purge Israel of its sin. All of that changed at Calvary. I want you to see if you can see the connection. You go back up to verse 1. Verse 1 serves as an introduction. It spoils the whole story. You already know who the guilty guy is in verse 1. It's a terrible way to tell a story. But it prepares the reader, particularly those of us who believe in the New Testament, it prepares us for what is to come. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Here's the first city destroyed and given to all of Israel. Later, it will be the firstborn of God himself, the anointed devoted one. And notice this. For Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerai, the tribe of Judah. The blood that runs through Achan is the blood that will run one day through Christ. It's the same tribe, same ancestry, same tree. The difference is Achan dies to purge the land of his own sin. Christ dies to purge the land of our sin. Christ is the true and greater Savior, is he not? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, as well as with ancient Israel, for that matter, it wasn't just that people could be defiled. We still use that language today. We wouldn't say someone's defiled. We'll use words like shame and guilt and dirty and unclean. But it's defilement. It's the same language. And we would grasp that, that, that people can be defiled. If, if you touch a leper, now you're defiled, right? But in the ancient world, it wasn't just that people could be defiled. It was also that land could be defiled. Again, the whole point of Israel conquering the, the promised land was to cleanse of the defilement of the promised land. Land can be defiled. The two are related in the Achan narrative. Achor now has become a place of defilement. After all, dead people are buried there. Not just any dead people, but the dead who defiled God. People who disobeyed the Lord and deceived his people. So what you have is the defiled family, Achan and his family, are buried in a defiled land, given a defiled name, the Valley of Trouble. But what we see in the Bible is that that story changes. Let me give you just two passages from the prophets. The first is Isaiah 65. Sharon shall become a pasture for the flocks. Notice this. The valley of Acre, a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. You, you, you see what's happened? The valley of Acre will no longer be known as a place of death and defilement. A place of life and hope and peace. See the same thing in Hosea that says, and there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Vineyards are associated with Edenic language, right? Because in Eden you have fruit. Later, Noah eats of the, of the vine, right? Which is a, a type of uh, uh, Eden story, the fall of Eden. And, and so this vineyard imagery is borrowed all that from the Eden language. 
And so, so here you have vineyards in the valley of trouble. And from that valley comes hope. There, there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So, so, so you notice it's, they're coming out of the land of Egypt. We, we're clearly supposed to see this story, aren't we? But what are the prophets saying? The day will come when all that has been defiled will be cleansed and renewed. And you won't look at that heap of stones and say, don't forget what Achan did. You'd rather look at the heap of stones and you say, look what Christ, the son of Judah, accomplished. That's the point of the story. It's about Christ, who even though we may defile and even though we may sin and although we may deceive and although we, we, we may err grievously, There is a grave that no stone could keep the body in. He was a descendant of Judah who conquers the grave and he cleanses us from sin. Let's go to Lord in prayer.